Hey, I'm really pleased to welcome to the podcast Christina Dent, who I just met like eight seconds ago. And I'm really, really excited for this conversation. Christina is a conservative Christian advocating for a humanized, health-centered approach to the war on drugs. She's the founder and president of End It For Good, which is a nonprofit with a mission to invite people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life, preserve families, and promote public safety. Her brand new book, and let me see if I can pop it up here, actually. There we go. All right. Her brand new book, Curious, <laughs> encourages people to see the value of every human life, understand the suffering caused by drug prohibition, and envision how more people can flourish when drug policies prioritize life and health. So please join me, everybody, in welcoming to the podcast for the first time, Christina Dent. Christina, welcome. So uh, let's stir up some controversy, all right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thanks so much for having me, Duke. It's really fun to be here. Yeah, so good to have you with me. Thank you so much for for joining me, for doing this episode. Thank you for um, sending me your book. It's been awesome to go through it, to listen to your TED Talk that you did a while back, and to read your book and really find out about the work that you're doing. Really, your book is brand new. It was just released, I think, a few weeks ago at the mm -hmm. time of this recording. So what's been the reception like so far since your book has come out? It's been really just overwhelmingly positive um and now maybe people don't tell you if they don't like your book but there's times <laughs> where you feel like you can see you know this is somebody who went out of their way to say wow this has really been helpful this has really meant a lot to me i was talking with a guy who's in recovery and he said reading the book has been really healing which is interesting because i'm hmm. not a person in recovery i'm not writing from that voice but um, as he went on to describe that, he said, you know, part of it is just how much shame I have carried and how much um, the the response of Christians has played into that. And so reading a fellow Christian talking about this uh, very hard and painful issue in a compassionate and thoughtful way was for him just... Um, an acknowledgement of, of the pain that he has carried. And that is something mm. that was not, I had no concept of that prior to this journey of being a foster parent. I didn't understand addiction at all. All I had to go on was kind of what the culture had told me, which is bad people doing bad things. And that's the mm. end of the story. And not only is that the wrong story, it's not even the beginning of the right story. <laughs> Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you and I are very much kind of in the in the same boat as far as our upbringings and that sort of thing. I've, I've heard you talk about this being a conservative Christian. And I've, I've thought about this as well. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I've never I've never done a drug in my life. And this is a conversation that I've be just be becoming increasingly interested in. And I've been trying to be more and more just open-minded about and i think that and one of the things that you touch on in your writing as well as in the just in, in from what i've i've heard from you with your ted talk and some things like that it's 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 hard to change our own way of thinking it's really hard to get other people to change their way of thinking and there's a lot of this a lot of this conversation that we're going to get into where we're talking about things you're talking about things you're advocating for things 
that have been so like engraved into the minds of people of many, many people, not everybody, but many people for a very, very long time. And when it comes to things like that, it's hard often to hear clearly another perspective that somebody else is bringing into the mix. I wonder what what was it like for you? And I would like to get into just how you got into all this and, and all of that. But I do. I'm just out of curiosity. I have a question. What was it like for you when you started to go down this road, you know, several years back and you started to really get into this conversation about rethinking the war on drugs and all of this kind of stuff, being the I imagine the kind of people you're connected to, people in your family, people in your church and that sort of thing. What how was this perceived? Did it, I wonder if there was pressure on you from people or if there was like some if it was a difficult transition for you to make just in terms of like public perception. And if you got a lot of backlash or continue to get a lot of backlash for the kind of things that you that you talk about. Yeah, um, I was really worried about that. <laughs> I'm a people pleaser. I like everyone to be happy. Um, and I had I had spent my life doing things that pleased people. I figured out at a very young age how you succeed in the world that I was raised in. In this kind how you of, fit in, uh, yeah, yeah. How do you fit in? How do you get praise? How do you get adults to say, "Wow, you know, that's somebody I want my kid hanging out with." Um, <laughs> and I liked achievement, and I liked being good. And so I figured out, hey, you know, if you just follow the rules and you just do things well, people praise you and it makes life easier because you're just liked by people. And mm. so when I got into this and began this journey of learning and found my own mind changing to support approaches I had never even considered before, I had actively opposed before, it felt really scary. It felt like the rug getting rug, you know, ripped out from under me because none of us want to be confronted with something that pushes against what we have believed. As much as we mm -hmm. like to think of ourselves as open minded people, it is uncomfortable. There's no way around being uncomfortable when something you have supported gets challenged in a way that you actually find a little bit compelling. So it's one thing if you get challenged and you can immediately throw it in the crazy bucket. You know, that's crazy. You know, yeah. I'm not even going to entertain whether or not that could be true. And that's what we do most of the time when we come across um, beliefs that are different than the ones that we hold. We say, I can't believe anybody mm. believes that. that's so crazy. Uh, we don't really entertain mm. them. We don't really give them the time of day to think about why do other people believe that's true, even if I don't and try to understand where mm. they're coming from. So for me, when I began to learn and began to see these ideas and find them compelling, um, I was very uncomfortable personally just to go through that destabilization of what is this going to mean for me? What is this going to change in my life? What what other values is this going to touch on? What It's very um, disorienting because mm. we we have made sense of our worlds in a little framework that makes sense to us. And when something new comes in, we're not sure exactly what all that's going to change in our lives. You know, we could think about that through the lens of the gospel. If somebody comes to faith. We don't know what all that's going to cost us. We don't know sure. where God's going to lead us. We don't know what parts of our lives he's going to convict us of that. We, we didn't really want to give over in the beginning. Um, and yet when we're walking with him, we're, 
we're on a journey and it's going to keep taking us places that, that might hmm. still be uncomfortable. And so that was the, the feeling that I had in the beginning was just this discomfort and uncertainty over what is this going to mean for me? And, and how do I put all of these new ideas into who I am as someone who is a believer, as someone who um, sees the role of, of government through a conservative lens? Like, what is that going to do? And so when I started talking about it publicly, I was literally shaking, shaking <laughs> as I posted my first Facebook post about this change of mind away from a criminal justice approach to drugs and addiction towards a health centered yeah. approach, thinking people are going to think I've lost my faith. That was the the first thing wasn't just they're going to think I'm crazy, but they're going to think I'm not a Christian anymore because mm -hmm. in the world I grew up in and I'm from Mississippi, born and raised here. I've lived here my whole life. Um, the the role of faith in politics was so tightly wound that mm -hmm. it felt like to me anything that feels like it might be a move away from that is going to seem like I'm throwing out everything. And right. that wasn't at all what I was doing. And I wanted to help people see that you can you can learn new information and you can change your mind about the best way you think your values should be lived out. Didn't change my values. I changed the, the path that I think best reflects those values related to mm. drugs and addiction. And my, my experience of people's response to that was overwhelmingly positive. And I think a large part of that is because in the very beginning, I just had this, um, I wasn't sure how you go about com communicating something you're passionate about. Do you stick your flag mm -hmm. in the ground and do you just get angry at everybody who disagrees mm -hmm. with you? That didn't really feel That's like one way to do it. It's one way. <laughs> it's one way to do it. Is it Just winsome? Look at Twitter. Is it effective? I don't think so. And I think yeah. research bears that out. <laughs> um, but there, I felt that sense of like, oh, I've, I've learned something. I want to communicate it. And I want, I want people to know how much I believe in it. So that, that pull towards this sort of activism. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when I thought about my own journey of learning what I came back to is the things that gave me the space to learn were the people who were very kind and just answered questions as I had them, offered resources, but didn't push, didn't shame, didn't blame, didn't yes. tell me I was wrong. They just gave me a space to learn and they equipped me with information to learn yeah. and to come to my own conclusions. And that was incredibly powerful for me. And that's what I ended up doing and it has been incredibly powerful for thousands of other people now who have joined this journey of rethinking how we've approached mm. drugs and addiction so that we can save lives help more families be healthy um, and ultimately have safer communities too which everybody wants yeah absolutely yeah and i think it's really a powerful thing to have people from different walks of life involved in this conversation I'm just thinking about how, you know, obviously it's so important, it's so essential that in this conversation we have people advocating that have had their lives, you know, personally very impacted and affected by, by you know, whether it's drug addiction, um, drug overdose, that sort of thing. Um, but also to have folks on the other side of the equation that see the merit in this. I mean, I do think it's interesting coming at this conversation from a perspective of, you know, like personally... I don't like I don't have a dog in this fight in terms of like I'm not fighting for there to be 
for uh, there to be a decriminalization for drug possession because I want to do drugs or because I right. want anybody to do drugs or like any of that. It's because I see the the negative impact that it's having on society, that it's having on families, the destabilization of families and communities. I see that. I see that it's been going on forever. It's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. So at the very least, we need to reexamine the structures that are set up in place to, to just stop. Like, I don't want anybody. And I know you're the same. Like, I don't want I don't want people to, to be doing drugs, particularly the drugs that are addictive and and uh, right now are are illegal, but particularly the drugs that are that are harmful to people's health. But we can't continue to look at the situation that's been perpetuated and pretend that the things that are being done to combat the crisis are actually really having any kind of a positive effect by and large. Right. Yeah. And so, so I appreciate you and your bravery for like coming at the, this conversation and jumping into it the way that you have. Well, I think it's important too to highlight just how badly what we're doing is failing. Mm -hmm. Cause I think if, if mm. you're not close to it, um, maybe you're hearing some negative headlines, but you want to believe that what's happening is is positive. I mean, all of us want to believe the things happening in the world are trending in the right direction. Yeah. Um, if you look at rates of illegal drug use, they've doubled in the last 20 years. That is not heading in the right direction. We had more overdose deaths. We've had record highs. It's basically every year is creating a new record high of overdose deaths. Mm -hmm. Over 100,000 people dying every single year of yeah. preventable drug drug overdoses so not trending in the right direction and one in ten Americans have used an illegal drug recently so if you just think about yourself at the grocery store walking down the mm -hmm. aisles one in ten illegal drugs we're not talking about legal drugs mm -hmm. or legal prescriptions they got from their doctor even that they're misusing we're talking about people buying drugs from somewhere that is not legal and using them so just because you and I aren't using them, doesn't mean a whole bunch of other people aren't using them. And that's exactly what's happening. So we might not see it in terms of, I might not have somebody in my neighborhood who's actually standing on their street corner. And I say, I know that guy's selling drugs, but the reality is that it's happening all around us all the time. And yes. it's getting worse as illegal drug use increases. The potency of those drugs is continuing to increase the overdose deaths because of that is continuing to increase because there's no quality control on the underground market. So we're, we're trending in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. We're going to need to change course somehow if we are going to move outcomes in a positive direction. So that's what we do at End It For Good. That's what the book Curious is all about. It's, it's my story of learning what we could do differently that could save lives. Um, and of inviting other people to consider, is that what we want to pursue? Because if you look at human history, all of us look back at, at the previous generations and we say, gosh, how could they not see all the things that we can see now? And, yeah. and we look back and we see all of these forward steps in human history. And each generation thought the, the previous generation was crazy for some of the stuff that they Absolutely. did. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be willing to say, there's some of that happening right now. There are things we are doing and partaking in today that our children and grandchildren are going to look back on and say, how could you not see? 
how did you not change direction when you saw that wasn't working? And I absolutely believe that how we have handled drugs and addiction is going to be one of those issues that our grandchildren look back on and say, how could you arrest people for something that was a response to trauma and pain in their lives? Mm. And you put them in jail, which exposed them to more trauma and pain. When you had the research showing that addiction is driven by pain, why did you continue using a response that adds more pain into their life? And that's mm. what we got to grapple with. And we have to be willing to say, you know, we've gotten some things right and we've gotten some things wrong. And maybe this is one of the ones we've gotten wrong. And the best thing we can do is to change course when we see that it needs to change, not to just continue on because it's what we've always done. You've got to be willing to say, you know what? Change is painful. It's painful to mm -hmm. admit that we might have been part of things that were not helpful and potentially actually hurt people. But the best way is not to stick our head in the sand and say, we don't want to know. The best way is to say, how could we prevent harm from happening um, to the next generation of people yeah. who are coming? And actually, I was giving a presentation, and um, this was to a, a group of master's students who were studying to be therapists. And there was a woman, and the way that I like to do presentations is I talk for about 30 minutes, and then the rest of the time we spend in discussion. So we wind mm -hmm. our way around the room. Everybody has one minute to share what they think about the ideas that I've just presented, which we'll get into. And it got to her. She was the last person sitting on the back row. And she said, you know, when I'm listening to you give this presentation, it makes me really sad. And my immediate thought was, oh, no, I wasn't trying to make you sad. I was trying to show you that there's hope. And she said, it makes me sad because I grew up with a father who was addicted to a number of different drugs. And he hid his addiction because he didn't want to get arrested for it. And so my childhood was marked by all sorts of chaos from my dad's addiction. Mm. And she said, my dad just passed away recently from drug-related causes. Mm. So when I hear you talk about the changes that we could make, it makes me sad because I think if we had made those when I was a kid, my entire life could have looked very different than it did. Wow. And that's what I think we have in front of us. Can we make the change so we can help people like Amanda who are being born today grow up in a world where their family members' addictions or their own addictions are handled in a way that reduces the level of harm that they experience rather than exacerbating it. Hmm. Wow. So, so Christina, let's back up a little bit and I'd love to hear just a little bit about your story. Like, how did you get into this? Like, how did, yeah. <laughs> how did you get into advocating for, for this? Yeah. Um, I'm not the person you would think would be doing that. Um, like you, never used an illegal drug. I grew up in Mississippi um, in a wonderful Christian home. I never used drugs when I was in high school or college. I wasn't around it. It wasn't part of what my friends did. I was homeschooled kindergarten through high school. Um, then I went to a Christian liberal arts university and got a degree in Bible. Still just was not part of my world. And continued not to be part of my world until I was in my early 30s. And my husband and I became foster parents. And through that experience, mm. 
we fostered a little baby who came to us straight from the hospital after he was born and his um, mom had been using drugs while she was pregnant. So he was removed from her custody. Hmm. So he came to us and the only way that I had to understand that situation is his mom must not really love him that much if she was using drugs while she was pregnant. I couldn't, you know, I had two boys myself. I just could not fathom how that could be. And so I brought him, um, Beckham, the baby, I brought him to his first visit with his mom at the child welfare office a couple of days after he came uh, to live with us. And I pulled into the parking lot and popped his car seat out of my car and turned around to walk in the building. And there's this woman running towards me, weeping. And she runs Hmm. over and she just starts kissing this little baby and talking to him. And this is Joanne, his mom. Yeah. And I wish that I could say I felt this immense compassion and wow, this is incredible, but really it just felt confusing to me. And I feel like oftentimes when we encounter something that doesn't fit with what we are expecting, we just get suspicious. We look for ways to discount it or discredit it. And so my thought process was, you know, uh, I don't think this can be real And so maybe she's just trying to get me to put in a good word with the social worker. Um, And I talked with her on the phone a couple of times, but, you know, and still she's, I'm, I'm hearing this mom who loves her son, but in my mind, I'm thinking, but he's in foster care, which means he's better off with me and he's not safe with you. And, Mm. and you're using drugs. And what I believe about that is people who use drugs are bad people. So that means you're a bad person. So it was lots of conflict over this experience with her that's coming up against all of what I have picked up from the culture about people like her. And so I went to, um, I let her have his, her one hour visitation with him. And I went to a park with my other kids and came back and, and picked him up. And he came back to our house with me. And I tell that story in more detail in, um, in the book curious, but he came back to our house and she left for inpatient drug treatment and she would call me from treatment and say, can you put me on speakerphone? And she would sing to him over the phone. Hmm. And the more that I got to know her, the more I realized she is a mom like me. She does love her son as much as I love my three boys. And, um, you know, her addiction is not a lack of love for her son. It is right. this uh, this very serious health crisis that she's dealing right. with. And maybe it's also a spiritual crisis and a mental health crisis. There could be lots of things involved in that. Sure. But I, I had this thought that, wait a second, what, what would happen then if she had gotten picked up by the police rather than being able to go to the treatment center where she was at getting the help that she needed to deal with the reasons why she was using mm-hmm. um, those drugs. Cause drug use is always drug use is a, it's a response. It's a solution attempt at other Absolutely. things. So we have been told drugs are the problem. Drugs aren't the problem. Mm-hmm. They're a solution attempt at a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. And until we can shift our focus to 
responding in a way that actually helps people deal with that underlying cause, we're going to continue to get negative outcomes because it's, you know, you can, you can take drugs away from someone and they'll shift to something else um, it, until we can find that healing, until they can find that healing for the reasons why they're using that coping mechanism of numbing is going to continue to be there. And there's, there's no way to take away all the drugs from all the people in the world. I was actually just talking to somebody yesterday who had spent some time incarcerated and he said, oh yeah, yeah. he said drugs are cheaper and more available in jail than they are out in the free world. Um, I said, yeah, that's what I've heard. A lot of people who've spent time incarcerated have said that, you know, it's, it's so easy. It's right there. He said, yeah, we got, um, once a week we would get chicken and you could trade two pieces of chicken for drugs. And that way you didn't wow. even have to have money. You could just trade food that other people wanted. And, and that, that would get you it. There's also this complicated system of, um, getting family members to put money on these cards and the numbers of the cards can be transferred between people incarcerated. It is, it's a wow. whole system yeah. of buying and selling within the prison system. And so I think it's worth thinking about that we can't keep drugs out of a maximum security prison. They are readily available and sold there. And yet we are continuing this approach to try to eradicate them in the free world. Um, and it, it doesn't work in either place. And we need to to shift our approach if we want to get better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the things that you kind of touched on there is the the shift in perspective of a, a health-based approach mm -hmm. as opposed to a, a criminalized approach, right? And so what do you think that that would look like? Or or in, in order for this to, for us to start taking steps in the right direction, what do you think are maybe some of the beginning things or even the low-hanging fruit of some of the, the first initial steps that really need to be taken so that we can actually start helping more people, getting more people on the right track as opposed to just kind of like coming down hard? I, I think as you were talking, I was thinking there about how it's really easy a lot of times. It's much easier many times in our daily lives to gravitate toward a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion because it just makes our lives easier. Like if I don't have to feel what that person is going through and, and I could just kind of numb myself or, or blind myself to the actual suffering that's going on there. And I can just kind of have that preconceived idea that this person is messed up. This person is making bad decisions. This person, as you said, that, that thought process, this person must not love their kid if they're choosing to partake of that substance while they're pregnant or whatever. And I think that when we approach these kinds of, it's a, public health crisis more than it is in, in a lot of in a lot of sense more than it is like a criminal mm -hmm. criminal behavior you know what i'm saying and so but it's easier for for society for people in general to kind of sit back and to think about it with that lack of compassion because then it doesn't affect them personally and and i think one of the most important things that you and and other voices like you are putting out into the world today is this thing that says, no, 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 like this is not okay for you to ignore just because maybe you haven't at this point in your life been personally affected by it. Because I think that we've got to 
start at least from that place of having compassion for people that are struggling and that are suffering. Part of that is understanding what this really is, that this isn't, it, as you said, this isn't just a bunch of people that just want to do drugs because they don't care about anything else. It's like, no, like this is, there's a, there's a real like public health crisis. As you said, some of it is mental health. Some of it is, it's all kinds of things going on, but we can't be so quick to judge and just separate ourselves from this thing that is plaguing just so much of society today. If we really want to see change. And as you said, just sticking people in prison for it, and whatever, like that's not fixing the problem. It's exacerbating the problem in a large number of these cases because it's not actually helping people to be better. It's not helping people to deal with, as you said, the underlying root causes of why these drug problems exist. Why is this supply, or excuse, yeah, not the supply, but why is the demand for this so high? And beginning to look at some of those more just personal issues and community issues and societal issues and systemic issues and things that are going on uh, in communities and families and the lives of people that are leading to these things. What does it look like to begin to make that shift, right? Like, what does it look yeah. like to begin to, to shift this to more of a, um, a health-centered, a health-based approach to dealing with the, the addiction problem and the drug problem as opposed to just you know, criminalizing everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's helpful to take that in three parts. Um, and I'll quickly walk through why the current approach doesn't work so that I can explain why a different approach would work. Um, so if you look at, um, so we've been talking about people who are using drugs, but let's, let's zoom out even further than that to look at the whole issue of how we handle drugs, um, uh, because it's part of the way that we fix crime and it's part of the way we fix the overdose crisis, which are, um, top of mind for a lot of people, even if, like you said, even if they don't feel like they're personally impacted by addiction in some way. Um, mm -hmm. so when you look at what is happening with drug markets, uh, when you have a market that operates in a legal regulated market, um, it's not marked by crime and violence. You look at the alcohol market or the cannabis market in states where it's legal. Um, now, you might not like either of those things. I don't use either one. But but the market, you don't see people who own a liquor store, you know, going down the street and killing the people who own a neighboring liquor store. That that doesn't mm -hmm. happen. Those markets are operating in a legal, regulated way. If they have a problem with one another, they take it to the court system. You have business people who own those businesses, not people who are engaging in criminal activity and um, creating crime in the community. But what happens when you take markets for popular drugs, which we have for many different drugs, and you force them out of that legal economy, they don't go away. They just move underground. So you have hmm. massive influx of cash into criminal organizations. So gangs, cartels, terrorist organizations, all of them are primarily funded through the money that comes from drug prohibition, from forcing some of these drug markets underground. So if you think about crime, every time we prohibit a new drug that people want to use, it incentivizes and creates more crime, not less crime, more crime, because mm -hmm. it's giving more of a market share, more cash flow into people who are breaking the law. And how do you get more and more of that cash? Well, you take out your competitors, you consolidate power. You don't do that through the court system in an underground market. You do it through force. 
And that creates a lot of crime and violence in our streets, all around our communities. If you look at the root causes of so much of crime, it is related to this underground drug market that's playing out all around us. And so we would love to see those markets begin to shift back towards legally regulated markets. Now that that doesn't mean candy aisle. It means let's look at the potential harm of each particular drug and develop a regulatory structure that might work best for it. We already have done that with tobacco, mm -hmm. with alcohol, with cannabis, with prescription drugs. There's all different ways that we already have developed regulatory structures for drugs to, to move those markets legal instead of into this free-for-all underground crime laced market yeah. um can, can i pause you for a second yeah. <clears throat> so what you're talking about is is would be moving beyond just a decriminalization to an actual legalization right which is a little bit stronger it's not it's not just a matter of um i'm not going to go to jail for possessing it's actually i can go somewhere that's a legitimate source to obtain this which was once an illegal substance mm -hmm. what we much like what we've seen with <clears throat> uh you know care, cannabis marijuana over the yeah. past several years in many many states right so yes. yeah you're that's a great point two different things one is kind of dealing with consumer is drug possession a crime the other is dealing with the market for the drugs that they're buying and whether or not it's operating legally or operating in this underground market so that's a great point. So on the crime front, underground markets create a lot of crime. They incentivize crime and they give people a lot of money to engage in other sorts of crime by the amount of money the underground market is making off of these drugs. Mm. So on, on the one hand, it's a it incentivizes crime to make drugs illegal, but it also is the reason why we have the overdose crisis that we have today. Because yes. on an underground market, there is no quality control. People can sell whatever they want to. And the incentive is to make those drugs as potent as possible. I'll give you an example of this that people always smile because they have seen this happen. If you think about alcohol, if you go to a sports stadium where alcohol is prohibited on the inside, mm -hmm. what you see when people are tailgating before they go in is that people are drinking beer but when they go inside and prohibition has started at those gates, they begin drinking hard liquor on the inside. Mm. It's not because their tastes have changed. Yeah. It's because prohibition <laughs> started. And are they going to take the risk of smuggling a six pack of right. beer? No. Yeah, it's harder to fit a six pack under your right. shirt than a <laughs> right. You just get to smuggle your flask. <laughs> right. Not because you particularly want that, but because prohibition is always going to incentivize the biggest punch in the smallest package because there's mm -hmm. risk associated with moving that drug. So if regular people at a college stadium, are making that decision and they're responding to the forces of prohibition by upping the potency and of the drug that they're using it is completely understandable and predictable that the manufacturers of drugs on the underground market are going to be doing the exact same thing they're also taking risk by smuggling these drugs they want to get the biggest punch in the smallest mm. package and so what you have is this very dangerous cocktail of high potency drugs with no yes. regulation, no quality control. So now we have fentanyl, which is an understandable response to the forces of prohibition. You can smuggle a suitcase of fentanyl and it can get millions of people high. 
Mm-hmm. Or you could smuggle, you know, a, an entire shipload of heroin and it can get millions of people high. It It is a response that is creating this overdose crisis that we have because now more than 90% of people who are dying have fentanyl in their systems when they die. They're yes. not getting medical grade fentanyl from their doctor. They're getting random whatever they happen to buy on Stepped the street. On, yeah. Yes. And it just yeah. is causing so, so many people to die. Can, can you explain f- fentanyl to me? Because <laughs> So it seems like, because I fully understand what you're saying. That's a beautiful, that's a perfect analogy. This the sports uh, game from tailgating to going inside the stadium. You have to smuggle something, so it has to be more potent. It does make sense that the same thing would happen in the illegal drug market. Um, but fentanyl seems like, I mean, it's so much more potent than traditional heroin or whatever. It's so much more deadly. Like such a small amount can kill somebody. I believe fentanyl is now. Is it the number one leading cause of of death for? Is it folks age eighteen to forty nine? I think is the statistic that I've that I've heard recently. Yeah, so overdose um, fentanyl the, overdoses. Yeah, overdose is the number one accidental cause of death in the United States mm-hmm. now, and now more than ninety percent of those are are caused by fentanyl. So yeah, are fentanyl. So like, what was what is that? Because that seems like an overcorrection to me, and I and mm-hmm. I'm having a hard mm-hmm. time wrapping my mind around why they're producing so much fentanyl if they're essentially like they know they're going to be killing their customers. Like, I'm just, I don't know. Do you know like what the the dynamic is that's going on there? Like why it's that potent and why it's ending up in it, it just inside of, you know, so many like other drugs that they're not expecting it to be fentanyl. Um, yeah. So the, the root cause is the same that there is a, this push towards higher potency um, but the is it cheaper to produce? Is it? Yeah, it's very cheap to produce. You don't. You can do it in a lab. Artificial, so, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you don't have to. You don't have to really have yeah. to grow a poppy plant or anything like that. You can produce it in a lab. You can produce it out on the the open plains. Out um, if you've got a lot of land. So it's very cheap to produce. It's highly potent, and it fits that bill. Now the the challenge is that. Because you don't have quality control, you don't know what actually happens to that fentanyl over the course of its life cycle to get from producer to consumer. So you do, if you produce alcohol, it's going to be the same product that leaves the manufacturing facility and when it hits the consumer, it's going to be the same thing. But that's not true. With other drugs, they go through many different iterations often. Um, Somebody who's producing it is selling it to someone else. They might add a bunch of other stuff to it, or they might um, they might buy what they know is a concentrated amount of it, and they think mm-hmm. they add enough to it to to make it non lethal to mitigate. And yeah. then yeah, then they sell it to somebody else. They might add other things into it. They sell it to somebody <sighs> else. They might add other things to it. So you have no idea okay. what's actually getting to the consumer. But also, and I think this is a really important point. Um, fentanyl is not always lethal. People the introduction of fentanyl into the underground drug market has created a market for fentanyl. Now there are people who seek out fentanyl that is their drug of choice and the drug that they're addicted to. They don't want to buy heroin. They want to buy fentanyl. So there are lots of people now who are actively um, proactively buying fentanyl on purpose because that's what they want Mm -hmm. to use. But any drug is 
whether or not it causes an overdose is a combination of a lot of different factors. You could have two people using the exact same amount of drug out of the exact same amount of batch um, or out of the exact same batch. And one of them's body chemistry may be such that it metabolizes it in a way that gets them high. The other person Hmm. might have body chemistry that metabolizes it in a way that is too much for them. It suppresses their breathing and leads to um, what we call an overdose, which is really just a a respiratory failure. They stop breathing because the Um, the depressant effect on their respiratory system is too great. Instead of just making them feel relaxed, it is actually causing them to, to stop breathing. Or it could be that somebody was actually had a couple of beers earlier in the evening. Then they went to use this other drug. The combination of drugs, most people who die from an overdose have a combination of drugs in their system. Mm. So it might not have actually even been the fentanyl that killed them. If they had used that well. on its own, it might have been fine. It might have just gotten them high. But because they were using X, Y, and Z earlier in the evening and it was still in their body, um, that's what actually led to the overdose, not particularly the fentanyl itself. It just has a much lower, um, the the margin of error is just razor thin with yes. fentanyl. So okay. there's not a lot of wiggle room. Um, so both of those challenges, the crime problem with underground markets and the contamination problem with underground markets, can only be dealt with by bringing those markets back into some sort of legal, regulated fashion, which makes me very uncomfortable. I'll just be honest about <laughs> that. <laughs> right. As somebody who doesn't use and doesn't want other people using, that's just uncomfortable. I, I wish it would work that we could just ban things we think are potentially harmful and they just sort of went away and, and there was no harm associated with it. But that is not the real world of what's happening. What's happening is south of our border, entire countries are being destabilized because of the violence and the corruption that the underground market has given cartels the ability to create in an entire country mm. to be able to destabilize yeah. it and so many people dying of overdose and if we're going to meaningfully address those two challenges the the role of the underground drug market has to be meaningfully minimized and unfortunately the the only way to do that is by allowing consumers to move back into purchasing from legal regulated markets instead because as long as consumers are spending money people are going to keep producing whatever those consumers want demand mm. always drives supply and we have millions and millions of people that want to buy drugs that are currently illegal and they will continue to buy them um, yeah so we can't we can't force them not to but we can make it um, much less dangerous for them much less likely that they're going to die which is going to give them an opportunity um, to make healthier choices and and to stay alive. So this is a <laughs> this is a sticky conversation, right? Because in, envisioning a world in which a an adult, you know, I, I would imagine be the kind of scenario where they'd yeah. be twenty one or older, the same way that alcohol is set up, uh, going into a store or going somewhere where they're able to legally purchase heroin, right? And so you can say the the normal pushback on this would be, well, 
there's going to be people that never would have done drugs because they didn't want to go to an illegal source to get it. There's going to be people that are going to do drugs that would not have otherwise done drugs. There will be people that will get addicted to a substance that otherwise maybe would have gone their whole life without ever even trying that substance. Right. So I think that's the, that's like the normal pushback of this conversation. Again, as the disclaimer, like I don't want anybody to do drugs uh, other than, you know, in situations where you, where you need it for your, for your health, for pain, right, for whatever. Right. But I, th I think that's the normal, the normal pushback on this, right? It's, it's dealing with that reality that there will be people and and maybe people will get addicted that otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and so we're dealing with that aspect of this, which is where I think that this conversation gets a little bit tricky. But at the same time, it's putting something like that in place in order to mitigate this epidemic of a crisis that's going on in our world today with all of these people that, I mean, it seems like you mentioned one in 10 American adults have tried an illegal substance. Would you say recently? Recently. Mm -hmm. recently. That's the U.S. So government's it, it, term. That's not my term. <laughs> That's their term. They can they say recently. Recently. <laughs> Defined recently. Yeah. So it, it seems like most people, and again, not everybody, but it seems like most of the people that want to to get their hands on drugs, like they'll find a way to mm -hmm. to do it. Like they'll find yeah. a way to find their 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 way to that substance. Yeah. The good thing about having it be more regulated, one of the good things about it would be if there's an age limit on it, then, you know, it, it wouldn't be kids getting their hands on it. We could maybe crack down on this stuff becoming so readily available in the school system and things like that. My question is, is there a is it really possible at this point to put that genie back in the bottle in terms of you you talking you're talking about the potency and with illegal substances um prohibition essentially always leading to substances being produced in a more potent form would there still be a market for people that want something that's more dangerous that want mm -hmm. something that's more potent you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. because we see that it's going that way we see people that are just so interested they're, they're or they're so hooked on that 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 high that they know they're going to get from something like fentanyl that they're willing to take that risk knowing that this next dose could be their last mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying and so like it seems to me like this has been going on for so long that you know if we were to create this legally regulated version of this stuff for people to do recreationally or whatever that there would still be a segment of the market that would exist for those instances where people just they want to party a little bit harder they want to mm -hmm. go a little bit further or they want something that is cheaper or they want something that's whatever so yeah. i don't know like yeah. what do you what do you think about i mean i think these are just kind of the normal kind of pushbacks mm -hmm. to this conversation yeah. absolutely so i'll answer that two ways one I'd encourage people to read Curious because I, I split out in chapter, chapter, chapter on how do I think about this as a mom? You know, my oldest son is 15. I have three boys. I'm thinking about this now for my own kids. How do I keep yeah, them too. safest? Um, so thinking about it as a mom, thinking about it as a Christian, thinking about it as somebody who's conservative, 
thinking about it as, you know, is this just helping one segment of people and costing everybody else? And so I, I encourage people if it if there's something about this conversation that piques your curiosity, but you feel like this could never possibly work for all these thousand reasons, I'm going to encourage you to read the book, not because it's going to answer all of your questions, but because um, I hope it it gives you a little bit of a new framework to think about mm. it through and to continue that conversation, continue looking at different solutions. And so one of the things that was really helpful to me, and this is kind of, I'll shift to the second point of thinking about the potency and demand and people like you've got all these people that are buying drugs on the street. And like you said, how, I mean, are they, would they actually shift to moving like to buying something legally and would it just be something really potent and they just want to party harder. And so it's helpful to think about alcohol, alcohol mm. prior to alcohol prohibition, um, low potency alcohol was the most popular forms of alcohol on the market during prohibition. High potency became the most popular. I mean, you couldn't get low potency anymore because people had to risk. It's too expensive. It, it yeah, was too yeah, expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, yeah. people are drinking high potency alcohol. Alcohol prohibition ends. People go back to drinking mostly low potency alcohol. And now you think about alcohol mm. in our day, and I don't drink it's just because I don't prefer the taste of alcohol, but it's been really interesting to me to see this emergence of not just um beer, which is the most popular form of alcohol. It's a low potency form of alcohol. People could drink Jack Daniels all day long, but most sure. people don't because they don't want to get hammered. They want to just have a beer when they come home from work. So similarly, even a hundred years later, low potency alcohol continues to be the most popular form of alcohol mm -hmm. that people drink. But now there's this other, um, uh, this this new culture, I'm not sure that it's particularly healthy. I'm not saying that it is. It's just to the point of low potency that now you have all of these seltzer drinks that are even uh, their low potency alcohol. Mm -hmm. And now they're showing up in places like kids' birthday parties for adults who want to have a little something to drink while they're mingling with the other parents at the kids' birthday parties. Again, not sure, mm -hmm. not saying that that's a healthy part of culture to bring alcohol into more functions but just to say that the the alcohol market helps us to understand that the majority of people who use a particular drug want to use a low potency version and that was true even of heroin and cocaine so they have only been criminalized for about 100 years prior to that heroin and cocaine were both legal in the united states right. But the most popular forms of them were their lowest potency forms. The most popular mm. forms of cocaine were coca tea that people would drink, you know, similarly to like yeah. a strong cup of coffee. Um, the most popular form of heroin was in over-the-counter soothing syrups that people would use mm. if they were dealing with anxiety. And we look back at that and say, what? You could buy heroin over-the-counter? Yes, yeah. you could. It was low potency. Used to give cocaine to babies. Yeah, they did <laughs> for their, for <laughs> their <did>. teeth. <laughs> it was, and you look at those commercials, like that. You know the visuals of the commercials, and it's just mind blowing. It's nuts. Um, and yet, that was at the time they. It was all low potency, and it was. Um, it certainly there were some people who became addicted to it. It was a very small number, um, and that's still. 
uh, very counterintuitively true today. Most people who use even drugs like heroin and cocaine do not become addicted to them. They use them mm. either for a short period in their life or they just use them if they go to a party and the rest of the mm. time they're working and, you know, raising their kids or whatever they're doing. And we don't see that because it's hidden because it's illegal. Um, but the the data has shown that out for years and years that the vast majority of people who use any drug don't become addicted to it. Similarly right. to most people okay. who use alcohol. So I think there's some valid fears, particularly for your point of more people would probably use drugs. And I would say, yes, I think you're right. I think there are some people who are going to use, um, I think you've seen that with cannabis. So more young right. people don't use cannabis if it's legal for adults. We've, we've seen right. that, but more adults do use cannabis if it's legal for adults. Mm -hmm. And yet we see that even though use rates are, are increasing, these other harms are decreasing. The there's mm. less cannabis on the underground market. Um, there's few, far fewer people being arrested for any sort of cannabis crime. So I'm always wanting to look at the biggest picture possible. Not one bar on the bar graph, but the whole bar graph. We got to look mm. at crime. We got to <laughs> look at overdose. We have to look at families and children. And what does it do to children who grow up in communities that are racked by violence, who are losing parents to overdose, it's increasing their own trauma and risk of addiction. Mm -hmm. So it's not just access that increases people's, you know, risk of use. Yeah. It is all of these other features right. of what the drug market does to their life. And I think that's what mm. has convinced me so completely that this could work not that it's going to be painless. It's going to be painful. Yes. You, you don't get away yeah. from failed policy without a good deal of pain. But it's at least pain and service mm -hmm. to better outcomes rather than pain that's continuing to lead us to poor outcomes. That's so good. I, and and it, it seems to me that, you know, maybe and, and I, I again, there's not one answer, right? That's mm -hmm. going to that's going to fix everything. Yes. But if some of the funds like like what we've seen in Portugal, right? So like, like so if if some of the funds that were be, that are currently being directed toward incarcerating people, toward cracking down on people that that are possessing illegal drugs and that sort of thing, like if a lot of the funds that we're allocating to that side of this issue right now were repositioned to begin to focus more on some of more of the underlying causes, right? Like how we can actually help people get out of these situations, not just to get unaddicted from drugs, but to begin to sew into like the infrastructure of communities and areas that, you know, where we see a lot of the the the, the problem being perpetuated, right? Like it's, it's across the board. It's not just in like, you know, lower income areas that we see addiction. Of course not. Absolutely not. But, but I do think that they just have you know, there are, to hide it. That's all that's yeah, going on there. Exactly. Exactly. It's happening absolutely in high income <clears throat> communities. They're just a little bit more absolutely to, to hide it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I lived in Mexico uh, for three years uh, as a missionary, and it wasn't uncommon for me to like be driving to church in the morning and like see people on the side of the road drinking, like rubbing alcohol, mm. right? Like just drinking whatever they can get their hands on to perpetuate you know, their that that feeling that they for to 
get through that that problem, whatever that underlying issue is that they're having in their life that they're trying to block or mask or you know whatever the whatever the case is, but but they're just getting their hands on whatever they can find, whatever they can afford. And so that's where I think that you know that issue of even if we were to kind of like begin to clean this whole thing up, there would still be an area of the of the market where there would be uh, you know people that the whether we're talking about the cartels, criminal enterprises could prey upon you know people in those situations that are still going to you know find they're going to want to find a way to get their hands on this kind of stuff. But I think that like beginning to reposition some of the funds that are going into other areas and kind of sewing into different areas of society and it, communities in particular to like build up these communities. You know, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the whole uh, rat park thing, right? And that's such an interesting case study of what can happen. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's with rats, right? But I, <laughs> but rats are social animals and and that sort of thing. And that whole kind of study that was done that looked at what can what can happen when you are essentially putting, in this case, a rat in a cage, and they don't have access to things that are going to make them feel good and feel connected and that sort of thing. And so they're going to gravitate more toward the substance that's going to alter their state of mind right but would would you explain that a little bit and just kind of um mention just that experiment a little bit and like some of the key takeaways from the whole uh rat park thing i think yeah. that's a really interesting you know connection yeah i think that's that's a a great explanation of that third piece so we kind of talked about the market piece and then the substance piece um, of prohibition creating so many extra harms, but the consumer piece, the big question is, does incarceration actually help people stop using mm. drugs? Because if it right. did, even if you didn't like it, you could at least make the case that it works. So mm -hmm. what Rat Park did, it was done back in the 1970s by a professor named um, Dr. Bruce Alexander. And he was a, a young professor at that time. Um, and he was working at a, he had been assigned to work at an addiction treatment center. And as he talked with the people that he was working with, he realized, wait a second, all these people are telling me about the reasons they're using drugs and it doesn't have anything to do with the drug. It has to do with trauma in their childhood of being abused, of the loneliness that they yeah. feel, of the lack of yeah. community. And so being part of this sort of underground drug culture is giving them a place to belong and people to belong to. And so he went to his um, students that he was also teaching and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm learning all of these different things in the clinic with my clients. And the students said, well, that can't be true because these experiments were just done with rats where you put them in these boxes they are called Skinner boxes. Um, and you give them access to pushing a lever that can give them uh, regular water, or you can give them heroin or cocaine laced water. And you mm -hmm. put the rats in the boxes and they just push the levers and with the drug laced water until they eventually overdose and die. So see, this is what these it's drugs wild. do to you. Yeah. yeah. And, Dr. Alexander looked at those experiments and he said, well, but Skinner boxes are, they're these small boxes. There's nothing to do in them and they're isolated. So you're just putting a rat. It's basically like a similar scenario to putting a, a person in solitary confinement. There's a, a small mm. space. They're put in there. 
by themselves, no, nothing to do, no community, no, no, nothing. Any so question was the, was the experiment initially done with to, to, to show that like, was the, was the experiment originally set up to just see like which lever mm -hmm. the rat yes. is going to gravitate toward without even thinking about the environment Correct. that he was in. Right. So yes. they, so the initial conclusions are like, like, Oh, he's just going to gravitate toward the, the lever with the, with the heroin because that's what he, that's what he wants. So that's, that's what, what like, that's what yeah. they're going to go after. Okay. Right. Gotcha. So Dr. Alexander looks at that and he says, <clears throat> wait a second, rats are similar to humans and that they're incredibly social creatures. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what would happen if we put a rat in an environment that they were actually happy in where they had yeah. little rat friends and where they had toys mm -hmm. and they had sawdust and a all life. the things that yeah. make for a little rat happy life. So they created that on the floor of um, one of their labs at the university. And he and several colleagues, they put the rats in it with all the things they could ever want to be happy in a little rat world. And what they found is that the rats hardly ever pushed the lever for the drug laced solution and mm. they never used it excessively. Every now and then they would go and use it, but never to overdose, never to excess. Mm. And he began this 50-year journey of his career of rethinking that approach that says the drugs are the driver. And instead, maybe the cage mm. is the driver. And wow. the drugs are just the coping mechanism for whatever cage that rat happens to be in. If he's in a happy place... He doesn't need the drugs. If he's in a place where everything that's meaningful to a rat is taken away, yeah, he's going to use the drug-laced water. And you can't do that kind of experiment on humans because it would be um, inhumane. But he spent the next 50 years trying could, to research. You could have done it in the 60s. You could have got away, you yeah. could've, you could've got you away got with, away with a lot then. Um, <laughs> just trying to, to research in all the ways that he could. And in just continuing to talk with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients who came through his practice to understand, is that true? And his 50 years of research, along with many other people, have shown that, yes, that that that's what's really happening for people. It mm. is much less about the drug. And I was actually talking to a therapist who today specializes in treating people with addiction. And he says, for a lot of my clients who are addicted to a drug, if you go back in their history, the first thing they were addicted to is food. It's their first experience, wow. usually as a child, of using a substance as a coping mechanism for whatever was going on in their life. So mm. even if you take um, someone's uh, drug of choice away, unless you deal with the underlying reasons, they'll move to something else. They'll pick up a different drug of choice. Um, somebody told me, you know, it's, it's not a win. If you get somebody who's an alcoholic, and you just get them to stop drinking alcohol, but they start punching holes in their walls in their house. Like they can say that they're sober. That doesn't mean mm -hmm. that they're healthy. That's yes. we want health. We want them to be healthy, whether or not they're using a substance. We've we focus so much on the substance that we now consider, you know, if you're abstinent, hooray. And if you're not, mm -hmm. then you're you're not getting it. And and instead, I really think we need to shift to, to thinking, how can we help someone heal from whatever is causing the pain in their life and focus less on whether or not and what they're using? And all of that has become so much our focus that 
we often don't ask that deeper question. We mm. just try to look at the behavior modification on one behavior instead of saying, hey, how can we holistically help this person to find uh, a healthy life? And for me as a believer, find who God made them to be, help them to live into that identity as as a child of God and as somebody who is made in his image and of has incredible worth and, and value. So when I look at incarceration and I look at what we know now about the causes of addiction, it just breaks my heart. It is so sad to me that we are using trauma to try to solve a problem that is made worse by Mm. trauma. We have, you know, a person every now and then who says jail is the best thing, you know, it saved my life. Sure. Now, number one, that person is generally not saying that while they're in jail. They had some very short stint of incarceration that, yes. oh, well, now that was just the thing I needed, but I'm really glad that I'm now living the life I want to live on the outside with my family. Um, the reality is that for many, many, many people, jail and, and prison only makes their lives even harder. Um, so a different person mm. I was talking to yesterday, the, the the person who told me about chicken in jail and being able to trade that for drugs, just a few minutes later, I was talking to a totally different person, different conversation. They didn't even know I had been talking to the, the other person. Um, and he said, hey, I heard about your new book. Um, he said, you know, I got, uh, I had a felony or I had a cocaine addiction back mm-hmm. in my, the early days of my life. I got a felony for that. 32 Mm. years ago and for 32 years it has blocked me out of employment opportunity jeez he said even just four years ago i tried to go i I thought maybe i can go like do um get a license to be like an 18 wheeler driver truck driver and Mm -hmm. so he said four years ago i went and applied got all the way through the end of the process they were i was the the top person that they were looking at um and at the very end they said do you have any felonies? And he said, yeah, but 28 years ago for, you know, this this cocaine addiction that I was struggling with. Yeah. And they came back to him and they said, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't let you go through the program because of your felony conviction. So that's what we have. And we, we have an incredible amount of people who have been impacted in that way, who aren't saying this is the best thing that ever happened. Instead, for 30 years, it has been a ball and chain around their leg that has kept them mm. out of being able to provide, being able to um, to take opportunity and to, to live what most of us want, which is for people to be able to go do, you know, build a life, build a career, provide for themselves, be and be happy and productive and contributing. And, and he's done that in many other ways, but not in the ways that he wanted and without a lot of the opportunities that many of us just uh, take for granted that we could go get a, get a license for truck driving if we wanted to. And yet something he did 30 years ago is continuing to to be a barrier. Yeah, it's unreal. That that's such a, seems like such a massive, just oversight. In, in our world today that we could still be today operating based on that it just seems like such obsolete data mm-hmm. that we're using to just essentially judge people, condemn people, keep people stuck, keep people trapped. And it seems, it seems like that aspect of this seems like it could, it just seems so correctable. 
-hmm. Like it seems like that element of this at least is is part of this that we could actually correct. Yeah. You know, without even throwing a whole lot of money at it or right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, which goes to your point um, of kind of solutions. It there are solutions other than these kind of big picture solutions of moving drugs back into legally regulated markets. That's a that's a yeah. big deal and that would happen over many years, step by yes. step, uh, trying out things in one small location, seeing what works, moving to other places. But there are things like making drug convictions automatically expunged that could mm. massively open up employment opportunity for people. Yeah. Even if, even if a community is not ready to stop arresting people for those drug offenses in the beginning, um, just making it not hold them back for the rest of their lives on the back end. That's one step we could take. There are now, lots to be of those clear, kind of we're, steps. we're differentiating between um, drug possession charges and mm -hmm. uh, drug trafficking charges, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 You could definitely. So there's there's kind of a whole spectrum. You could say, hey, on possession charges, we're going to do X, Y and Z because really mm -hmm. it's just. There's no evidence that they were doing anything that could have been harmful to anyone else. It's just they were in possession of a drug we don't want them to be in possession of. Um, mm -hmm. Then you could do something totally different on on drug selling or trafficking. And that's really where the the shift away from that criminalized market comes in. It's not so much that we don't think people should be arrested for breaking the law because we do. We just think there's some things that have been criminalized that are not actually helping us to criminalize. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and for people who are, let's say, in states where cannabis is is legal and there's a legal market there, it's appropriate for law enforcement to arrest people who are selling cannabis illegally mm, there because right, they're, they're not participating right. in that new legal market. Now, some states have made it nearly impossible to participate in it by high regulations, high taxation. Right. Um, there can be definite problems there. But we would want to see the criminal justice system being empowered to when they are arresting people, it's, it is actually improving public safety. It's improving the community. And right now we have mm. here in Mississippi, drug possession is the number one reason why people are sent to prison. It's not for trafficking. It's Man. not for selling. It's not for intent to sell. It's not for murder, theft, anything else. Drug possession is the wow. charge that most that the highest number of people are being sent to prison for. So even if we just started there and began to roll that back a little bit, it would have a, a massive impact on lots and lots of families, which how we handle families affects every one of us because it's the, the bedrock of our communities. Now our country leads the world in incarcerations, number of, you know, people incarcerated, Right. I, I think the most cynical uh, viewpoint on this conversation would be that there's an incentivization to not decriminalize uh, because there's people out there that actually profit from people being imprisoned. I was surprised to find out because I just had no idea that uh, so many of the corporations that we that we interact with on a daily basis are involved in um you know what i would term that prison industrial complex mm. the uh uh like people like you know mcdonald's and wendy's all the way to 
air uh, some of the you know most popular airlines out there companies like um starbucks and uh telecommunication companies and just just all kind uh, just like all kinds of companies that are kind of involved in this thing and i don't know whether it's all bad or, or or not if it's all expletive or not but it does seem that there are you know people out there in society that are profiting off of our prison systems having more people in them so I don't know. That's a very cynical approach to this. Is is that an aspect of this? Do you, do you think that that comes into play? Yes, it absolutely comes into play because every every business or <clears throat> system that is involved in the criminal justice system, almost everyone has a lobbying arm. So that's true ah. for law enforcement there's sheriff's associations police chiefs associations all kinds yeah. of uh law enforcement associations then there's associations for um, businesses that provide services to prisons so you think about all the different businesses that provide um food for prisons that provide uniforms right. that provide uh phone services or video chats for people who are incarcerated um and so i look at that and say I'm willing to give the vast majority of people the benefit of the doubt and say they believe what they're doing is helping people. They believe that people need to be incarcerated if they're not acting mm -hmm. right. Um, whether or not that's really uh, a public safety issue or not, we have just been told that. I mean, I believed that and it wasn't because I was benefiting financially from it. I just thought, right. yeah, this is the right thing to do. It's it's what society has told me is the right thing to do. And people that I love, I hear kind of supporting this. And so, yeah, I bet this is, this is right. We need to, we need to use the, you know, the criminal justice system. And there are a lot of painful things that happen in the world and a lot of suffering and a lot of things that are wrong and mm. it has become the knee-jerk reaction of Americans to say, let's get the police to fix it. So right. we have continued to expand their purview of things that they're expected to fix. And yet they have a one tool and it only works well in a very narrow um, field of, of use. And yet we have asked okay. them to use it for all sorts of different things. So I think, yes, absolutely. There are um, powerful forces that mm -hmm. are lobbying to continue persuading us down policy and this yeah. the same yeah. path now where i would differ is to say do they do they are they knowingly doing that knowing that it's hurting people and i'm willing to give people mostly the benefit of the doubt to say you know humans are most of us believe whatever we're doing is the right thing to do um certainly there are some people who act against their consciences yeah. knowingly for profit but i think for most people that's been my experience with the vast majority of law enforcement sure we've had a lot sure. of them who have come to our events across mississippi and the vast majority of them want to help people they're trying to figure out how to help people in their communities they're frustrated that they keep arresting mm -hmm. the same people over and over again for drug possession and it it isn't bringing about the positive it's change that they yeah. want it to mm -hmm. see in their life. Um, and so I, I guess, yes, to your question. And yet I, I am, I'm willing to be much more gracious in terms of people's intent with that. I think most people believe they're doing good things and they just like me have never stopped to think they've never spent time learning to figure out, Oh, is this actually helping people or is this, 
um, potentially creating a lot of of harm. And when you've got money wrapped mm-hmm. up in that, it becomes even harder to see. Yeah. So you've got kind of your own internal investment of how you've spent your sure. career and all of that. But then when money's wrapped up in that, yes, I, I think it, it becomes even harder for us to see. Yeah. yeah and, and I want to agree with you that I, I hundred percent agree that the vast majority of, of police officers, you know, our, our folks that are serving, on, on that level are just amazing, amazing people. And I'm, I'm so grateful for them. I just think when we start getting up top of the food chain and we start, you know, talking about billions of dollars <laughs> being invested, you know what I mean? Like it's the kind yeah. of thing where greed really, really messes with all this stuff. I mean, greed is the reason, I mean, that's, that's the thing that's behind the, the, the drug industry right? Like, I mean, it's money, it's profits driving all of it. And when you get people that are willing to exploit people that are not in the best situation, uh, for your own profits, then it gets really, you know, it gets really, really messy. And when you have people that are, as you said, where there's, there's lobbying efforts and that sort of thing. And now you have people that are like throwing a lot of money that, that have, um, you know, influence in, in the areas of, of policy changes, whether they take place or not, or don't take place. It's, it's for sure an uphill battle. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, your voice and, and others that are, that are speaking into this, that, you know, whether we were talking about this issue or, or any one of a, a number of issues that are, that are so important in our world today to really see, the the changes and the transformations to see the reformation of of these areas i mean it's just it's just so so essential and i i think that the more that you know people like you keep pushing those changes over time tend to have a snowball effect and and hopefully you know affect greater things down the road w- would you quickly um touch on I just I mentioned Portugal and and they've been at this for I think what a couple of decades now since they began their they, they had a massive just policy shift in the way that they deal with criminalization for drug possession and that sort of thing and it seems like they've had uh, some incredible results because of that over a period of of many many years now that they've been into this. Would you discuss that a little bit? Because I know you know a lot more about that <laughs> than yeah. I do. It's a yeah. good case study, I think, for what could happen. Yeah. So Portugal in 2001 had a huge heroin overdose crisis. And they took the biggest shift mm-hmm. that anyone, that any country had taken up to that point to roll back these policies of criminalization. And they just addressed this consumer piece. So they don't have legal drugs there. They still have contamination problems, although they don't Mm. have fentanyl in their market. So that's an important note that is, um, will eventually expand worldwide, but it is largely a United States problem, the the fentanyl problem Mm. um, currently. So they just chose to address this consumer harm category. And they said, you know, instead of criminalizing people and arresting them, what if we try to help them build lives that they want to be fully present for really try to address Mm -hmm. this drug use problem as a, as a public health issue. And so they um, shifted a lot of funding around. They made it incredibly easy for people to get treatment and accessible, not just financially, but accessible Mm. where people are working, that there's treatment options close to that. It's not 20 miles out of town. 
um, where they need yeah. to go every day to get, you know, the, the help that they need. And so they did things like making treatment more available. They offered tax breaks to businesses who would be hiring people coming out of um, recovery and incarceration, that sort of thing. Um, they basically said, how could we how could we shift this approach from trying to traumatize people out of drug use into trying to help them build a life where they don't want to use drugs anymore? Mm -hmm. And what they found is um, injection drug use rate dropped in half. Uh, mm -hmm. Drug addiction rates dropped by a third. Drug related crime rates dropped um, because as fewer people are addicted, you also have fewer people committing theft or prostitution in order to get enough money to be able mm. to support a drug addiction. Well. And so they had just really phenomenal results from that and um, credit that to investing in this other side. So they spend, yes. you know, 90% of their drug intervention money on prevention and treatment and only 10% of it on enforcement. Whereas the U S does exactly the opposite, spending 90% <laughs> on enforcement and 10% on yeah. prevention and treatment. Um, wow. So it's a really amazing case study to see what's possible. Now, their healthcare system is very different from ours. It's certainly not translatable one for one to the United States. But the overarching ideas behind it of treating drug use as a health issue and figuring out how to um, leverage that perspective in their healthcare system and addiction system and criminal justice system um, had really tremendous results. And we would, would love to see that um, mm. shift happen here, not because we can guarantee a particular outcome, but because we know that addiction is a health issue and it absolutely should be addressed as one. And that's how we're going to get better outcomes is to begin trying different right. approaches of how do we help people through this healthcare lens rather than through this criminal justice system lens. We will we're going to continue getting negative outcomes as long as we're using the wrong tool. Mm. If you're using the wrong tool, it just cannot produce the kind of results that yeah. you want. Um, using the right tool is still going to take some trial and error to figure out really Absolutely. what works um, to help the most people. But it's a pathway towards towards hope. And that is what people have said about um, the book. There's a, a pastor who has spent, um, he's in the, the later years of his ministry, and he he read my book, Curious, and he said, you know, this is really a book of great hope. And that's what I want people to get from it. It's not, it's not a book that's going to beat them over the head with a certain way of thinking. It's a book that says, come join me on my own learning journey and see where you land. And I think it could change the way our churches um, deal with people who are struggling with addiction. Um, I think it could change how our families approach loved ones mm -hmm. who are struggling. Um, and I think whether or not we want to see any policy change happen, there are lots of ways that our own hearts, minds, and culture can change that make it a much more healing and life-giving um, experience and opportunity for people. Yes. Because no matter how deeply we might have been hurt by someone in our family who is struggling with an addiction, the best path out of that hurt is not to perpetuate an approach that is continuing to mm -hmm. push them deeper into that. It is to try to help them um, make that shift. And that's a lot of what our work is, is helping people understand why that shame and blame route does not produce the outcomes that we want it to. Um, and helping people catch a vision for, for a different approach. It's, it's not an approach that says what you're doing is okay. It's just an approach that says, 
Can we look it full in the face for what it really yes. is and come at yes. it with <clears throat> solutions and tools that actually have um, a chance at working? Yeah, that's the thing is like to honestly evaluate and to to take that honest position to say it's clear that this has not worked. Like, like the the war on drugs has been the most unsuccessful war <laughs> that that we've ever fought. Um, and we've had some pretty unsuccessful wars. So that's saying a lot, but it's it's the 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 approach to it is not working because, as you said, it's. I think so devoid many times again, not, not talking about an individual basis with, you know, not, not putting any, um, disparagement on, you know, individual law enforcement people or anything like that. So not on an individual basis, but by and large, it's a system that doesn't really operate according to, uh, compassion. It doesn't operate according to a pro-life view of this. But I think what you just said there was, was just, um, very, very well said that there are going to be pain points, right? Like if we were to switch this, if we were to do, like if we were to take the stance that Portugal took, which I don't see us doing that. Like I don't see us making that kind of a drastic shift. I think it would have to be the way that it would happen in this country would be little by little. It'd be the low hanging fruit. It'd be kind of going after, you know, certain aspects of this at a time. But I would hope that over time it would, again, snowball into something that really has positive effects. But if we were to do that, there would definitely be those pain points at the beginning. There would be that trial and error. There would be, oh, like, oh, we switched this around. This got better, but this actually got worse. And so we've got to actually maybe pour a little bit more into this area. We've got to find a solution for that. And we've got to go through it. I, I think that what inevitably happens when you make a shift and then you see that you don't get the best outcome right away is then it becomes something that you can look at from a distance very cynically and say, see, it doesn't work. And we got to go back to the way things were done. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, didn't um, like in Oregon, in Portland in particular, they instituted as like Proposition 110 or something like that, where they essentially tried to take a similar approach to what they're doing in Portugal and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it hasn't worked. It hasn't had, in a shorter period of time, of course, but it hasn't really had good results. But I don't think that they've actually gone to the extent of what you're talking about there, where the funds are actually reallocated to helping with more of the, the health side of things, the therapeutic side of things, the the modality, you know, putting the modalities in place to actually help people deal with the drug addiction. And they haven't actually taken all of those steps that are necessary um, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So the, I think there's a few things with Oregon that are helpful to keep in mind. So they, they decriminalize possession. So people aren't arrested mm -hmm. for possession of drugs anymore there. And they expanded access to care in part using cannabis tax dollars, um, to act mm. to increase their access to treatment. And so, um, they haven't had as many people take them up on the treatment side as, as some people were hoping would happen. And it hasn't had a big impact on overdose. Now I would look at that and say it, it couldn't have a big impact on overdose. Right. Overdose isn't a, the contaminated drug market isn't a function of arresting consumers. It's, it's the problem of contaminated markets and that, True, yeah. you know, 110 yeah. didn't do anything to change the contamination of the, mm -hmm. the drugs people are using. Um, but also there is, there's a, a long history of people who have struggled with addiction, who have been treated terribly in the healthcare system. 
Um, I've even had mm. people, I, I went to church with a guy who said, you know, he's a, he is a, um, a college professor, a PhD, and um, he had a uh, medical event in his house and ended up falling and knocking out his front teeth. And his wife took him to the emergency room and um, he got in there and, you know, he was in a huge amount of pain because he had uh, serious back problems and, and they wouldn't give him pain medicine because they said, no, he's just here. He's just an addict. He's here just trying to get pain medicine. You know, uh, we don't believe him. He knocked and, his teeth out to get yes. pain medicine. That's yeah, a, well, or the th I think the thought was, you know, he's um, not just knocked his teeth out, but but that he has had, um, you know, his drug use over time has caused this his teeth to you know right. be in the condition that they're in. And okay. so he was. They they would not believe that he was in extreme excruciating pain, and for from his back and. It would not give him the medicine until somebody walked in who worked in the hospital that knew him. And they said, oh, my goodness, Dr. So-and-so, uh, what are you doing here? And immediately everything changed. He immediately wow. got help. He immediately <laughs> got the medicine he needed. He said it just totally shifted his perspective of realizing when, when they had thought that he was just an addict, he had been treated right. terribly. When they realized yeah. that he was a college professor, suddenly mm -hmm. it, it changed. Yeah, he was more valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there was this immediate belief that, oh, he is mm -hmm. really struggling with pain rather than he's just trying to come in yeah. here and, and get drugs. And so um, in terms of how many people are, are you know, immediately calling a helpline and asking for help, that, that's going to take a lot of time to build back <sighs> the trust that we have lost from people who yeah. have been um, treated terribly. And some people aren't ready to get help yet, but this is probably a good, good place to bring up this point. It, when we talk about not arresting people for possession, it's important to differentiate that from not arresting them for anything. And I think that's a mm -hmm. fear people have. Oh, mm -hmm. wait a second. Is this, does this mean people who are using drugs can go do whatever they want to? They can go, you know, live in the city park. They can go use drugs in front of, you know, my kid's school. They can go, you know, just do whatever they want to. And nobody's going to be able to do anything about it. And yeah. we would say, no, it's, it's important for the community that we make clear distinctions between not arresting people for drug possession and not arresting people for breaking any number of other laws, whether that's uh, public intoxication, whether that is, um, you know, anything. There are lots of different ordinances and laws right. that cities have. Right. And you do need to abide by those. This is not a, a free pass to go live whatever life you want to on anybody's property. Mm -hmm. This is saying no possession. That's not helping people to arrest them for yeah. that. Um, and yet. Absolutely, cities need to have the ability to enforce the laws that keep the rest of the community safe and keep public land um, safe that protect other people's uh, rights of their mm -hmm. own private property and their own. Um, so I think that's where there can be some confusion of this kind of pendulum swing all the way in the other direction to we're not going to do anything to anybody who's who's using drugs. And we would say I, the middle ground is mm. where we want to fall there, where we allow adults to make their a personal choice. But when that bleeds into choices that impact the community and that are breaking other laws, right. yes, it's appropriate right. for communities to be able to enforce those laws to keep right. public order.
Yeah, it's a, that's an important distinction for sure. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because uh, yeah, we're talking about like non nonviolent, you know, offenses, not and and that sort of thing. And it just reminded me, there's um, in in Mexico, I think in Germany, and there's a handful of well, more than a handful. There's a number of countries around the world where um, if you are incarcerated, it's actually like in Mexico, if you're incarcerated, it's not illegal to escape. So, <laughs> so like, th because they look at it like freedom is a, you know, it's a basic human need or desire or mm -hmm. something for that everybody is going to pursue. And so they say that it's not illegal for you to escape as long as you don't commit any crimes <laughs> while you're escaping. So if you're destroying property, if you're hurting somebody, if you're, you know, that sort of like if you're bribing somebody, like if you're doing any of those things. So it kind of eliminates what you can do to to right. to find your way out. But it's like if you are you won't get in trouble, you won't get a longer sentence or whatever, just because you're making an attempt to try to um, escape prison if you get caught. Or whatever, the, or whatever the case may be. So anyway, as you were talking, about it, huh. it's like, yeah, so it's not just, um, it's not saying like everything goes like because this mm -hmm. is legal, then all of a sudden, like it makes the the things that people do when they're doing this thing that's currently illegal, like because there, there are a lot of uh, secondary offenses that happen when somebody is uh, is consuming illegal drugs, you know, there, yeah. there are all kinds of things that happen, yeah. like you know, drinking and driving or drink, yeah. you know, driving while intoxicated uh, yeah. on, on any kind of substance or whatever is, you know, clearly that's never been okay. Well, it right. used to be okay, I guess, but it's, it's, it hasn't been okay for yeah. many, many years. And that's yeah. not something we're not talking about just a free for all where anything goes. We're just talking about, I think, essentially, you know, boiling, it, boiling, boiling it down to approaching people f with, with dignity, with, with a pro-life, you know, mindset of, you know, valuing the humanity of the person and recognizing that probably if they're consuming these illegal substances, uh, it's because they have an addiction. And so we shouldn't treat that like a criminal offense. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Well, would you just uh, tell us real quickly about End It For Good? So you founded it in 2019. It's a nonprofit um, taking a pro-life and value-centered approach to drugs, um, prioritizing life and giving people opportunity to just thrive, you know. Mm -hmm. um, since you started this, well, what, what's the focus of it and what has the progress uh, been like? Like what have you, what have you seen so far? Yeah, so the vast majority of what we do is um, educational. So it is out in communities, either hosting events or doing podcasts or giving presentations, um, that it's helping the general public rethink what we've been doing. A big part of that is helping people understand why it hasn't worked. Uh, most people know we use the criminal justice system. Most people are frustrated that it hasn't worked well. There's very yeah. few people who say what we're doing is working great. Where the, where the difference comes in is which solutions are we open to? So a big mm -hmm. part of what we do is try to help people understand why that solution has not worked well, why it has not been a solution, but has actually created a lot of additional pro problems but then also to present those solutions and get the community thinking about that. Um, so mm -hmm. it started 
we started just doing events and that has turned into other things, writing articles and doing interviews and presentations. Our newest thing is um, my book curious that just came out. Um, but we, we believe that change happens by people being educated on what's happening and what the other potential solutions are and offered an opportunity to learn and take action. So mm. people people don't know what they don't know. And I didn't know most of this information. And even though I'm a, a college educated person who loves to read, loves to learn, it just had not crossed my radar. And so that has yeah. been our experience for most people. Most people are operating out of the same um, kind of cultural, what we've been told culturally for mm -hmm. the last uh, many decades. And so we do a lot of educational work on that front, whether it's through events or writing or whatever it is. Um, and then that has opened doors for us to talk to policymakers about it, to educate them on why these solutions um, that we believe could work. And it has really been a, a wonderful journey of even for people who don't agree with us on the solutions, mm -hmm. they appreciate the approach mm -hmm. that we take, which is non-confrontational. It's very invitational. We can be friends even if we disagree on the best path forward. We yes. can agree on some things and not all things. There's lots of opportunity here. There, Nobody needs to stick a flag in the ground and say, you either are with me on this or we're enemies. Um, I just don't think that is, I don't think it's healthy in culture. I don't think it's healthy in faith. <laughs> no matter how deeply I believe something, um, the best opportunity that I'm going to have to help someone understand why I believe it is to keep those lines of communication open, to keep a mm -hmm. uh, good dialogue happening, to try to understand why do they think the way they do? If I want them to take the time to understand how I think, I need to invest the time to understand how they think. And so that has um, been a wonderful part of this, is being able to spend time with uh, a growing group of policymakers who are interested in learning and then in seeing what their constituents might be open to. Um, that's mm. included law enforcement who are, are interested in learning what could help them be more effective at their jobs and to build better relationships in the community. And so that is uh, the majority of End It For Good's work. It is out there trying to first build the community support and then influence the people who can actually change the policies. Because um, changed policies only happen when enough people change their minds. Policymakers mm. will not change anything if their voters do not support that. So we wow. spend the vast majority of our time out in the community educating people who influence their leaders and then um, some of that time influencing and educating leaders so that as public opinion shifts, they're also educated themselves and can, can know which, um, which approaches can move us forward. So just here in Mississippi this year, we passed fentanyl testing strips um, are now legal. So people can get these little strips that they can use to test the drugs they're about to take and they will let them, you know, it, it pops up whether or not it contains fentanyl, um, which just allows them to know ahead of time, hey, maybe I should mm -hmm. use less. Maybe I should make sure I'm with somebody when I'm using. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't encourage them to use. It just tries to keep them alive if they're going to use yeah. anyway yeah. Um, that 
that they don't die while they're <clears throat> while they're doing yeah. it. And so that's a big shift for us here to not go down more, you know, let's let's just crack down harder, let's increase penalties, but instead mm. let's provide access to something that could help people stay alive. So shifts like wow. that are happening and it's really encouraging to see and really um great to be able to to talk about with you and um and yeah. your audience also. Man, I appreciate it so much. J just out of curiosity, how hard was it to for that to pass? Was it was that a simple thing or did that take a while for the fentanyl test strips? Was that so it was introduced two was... years ago and it failed. Okay. Came back this year, was passed unanimously. So um, okay. it just goes to show what can happen. Uh, yeah. People do change yeah. their minds. Policymakers change their minds. They're, they're, they're trying to learn about a whole host of issues. <laughs> this is just one of the things they yeah. actually, you know, vote on. And so it does take time for people to be educated, for them to think about um, a new idea and then to potentially support that new idea. And so I would encourage anyone, wherever you are, whether you're trying to work with your pastor to get something started at your church to help people, or whether you're working with your mayor or whoever, um, to just give people the time and give them an opportunity to keep learning. A lot of times that's just the pathway to change is, is helping people have um, a space to ask questions and the time that they need to really think through ideas and move to a place where they feel like, yeah, my, that does make sense. And I think we can, um, can get on board with that. And so, um, I think it, it's, it's always been important to me to, to make a pretty clear distinction in terms of what I'm hoping to see from pastors. I would love for mm -hmm. pastors. I don't, I don't, I think it can get really muddy really quickly when pastors are, you know, telling their people what they should vote on. I don't think that's really helpful, but pastors do influence a lot how they're how their church members approach struggling people and how they approach yeah. family members of struggling people. And our churches absolutely can grow in our ability to offer belonging and support and understanding and compassionate mm. care for people who are touched in all different ways related to addiction. And I think that would mm. be the, the hope I have in the, um, what I hope to see happen in churches is not that they suddenly become, you know, uh, political lobbying arms, but that they look inside and say, how can we provide that for people in our community? Because deep community and relationships and supportive yeah. um, communities are the best addiction prevention tool that we have, Come on. allowing people to find the relationships they long for and to find the healing for the hurts in their lives. Um, churches can provide that. And that's mm -hmm. the best thing we can do all along that spectrum, whether it's for people to help them never go down that path or to recover from that path or to walk with their loved one through that path. Um, we can do that no matter if any policy ever changes. So good. Christina, where can people go to uh, find your book, to find End It For Good, or to connect with you further? Yeah, they can go to enditforgood.com. There's lots of resources there. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can also get it through the enditforgood.com website. It'll take you over to Amazon. Uh, but it's called Curious, uh, A Foster Mom's Discovery of an Unexpected Solution to Drugs and Addiction. It's not a policy book. It is my life story. It's just my yeah. life story on this particular issue. So it's um, 
it's a quick read. It's a engaging read. And I think we'll leave you thoughtful and hopefully mm-hmm. a little inspired. Um, so yeah, come join us over enditforgood.com. That'll connect you to all sorts of resources, our newsletter, social media, and all of that. We'd love to have you join this journey with us. Guys, get the book. Uh, pick up the book, Curious. And uh, even even just for um, the the stories that you share, Christina, in the book are are just they're they're so they're they're so impactful. And and one of the things here is that. You know, you you talked about from the very beginning of your journey here with uh, jo, uh, is it Joanne, Joanna, mm-hmm. Joanne. Oh Joanne. yeah, the end of her story is also in the book. So yeah, um, more there too. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think we got all the way to the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I kept interrupting you, but but the thing but the thing about it is, you know, coming in with those preconceived notions, those preconceived ideas. And it's interesting how quickly our preconceived ideas can begin, maybe not 100% like right away, crash all the way to the bottom, but how our preconceived thoughts and and opinions that are wrong, (laughs) how they can begin to disintegrate when we make a real meaningful human connection Mm. with somebody who goes against the grain of what we've been taught. And we've seen that happen with people when it comes to like, you know, racist ideology and they they meet somebody who is a, a a member of that particular group of people that they had hatred for that they were indoctrinated against then they meet that person and it's like that worldview falls apart because they're like you're not anything like what they told me that you were like and yeah. it's like that situation where it's like hold on like this mother is not anything like what i expected that she would be like based on my preconceived thought of who she is or who she was as a mm-hmm. person she has real love in her heart for this child of hers. And so maybe I need to rethink, mm. um, you know, maybe I need to, you know, we're not trying to tell anybody how they should think or how they should feel about this or whatever. But I, I love the invitation of the book. I love the invitation of your conversation today and really all the work that you do of inviting people to see a different perspective and to reevaluate. And, and we all have to do that at different times in our lives constantly, really just reevaluating things, like reevaluating why we think the way that we think about this. Is there a better way? Is there a more uh, pro-life approach to this? Is there a more compassionate approach to this? Is there a more loving approach to this? Whatever. And I think that that's something that you really do in your book and uh, in all the work that you do. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for the work that you do. And uh, once again, just thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Duke. It It was really great to be with you. I love being able to hit all so many diverse angles of this topic. You, um, I think people will see this is really complex. This is not, not an easy thing to dive into, not an easy thing to solve. And yet... Um, incredibly important. I think it's just one of the pressing issues of our day because it is affecting almost every family in America. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Appreciate you guys so much. Check out the book Curious on Amazon. Check out uh, enditforgood.com and those other resources that Christina mentioned. Appreciate you guys, and uh, we'll see you next time.